Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and I'm bringing you a solo episode tonight. Uh, my co-host and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. So we just wrapped up, I just wrapped up an episode with Chris Matman, who is the Chief Technical Officer and the Innovation Officer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's just a fascinating guy, a consummate futurist who thinks a lot about emerging technologies and specifically about how different technological trends interface and interact with each other. So he's obviously a space guy being at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but he's got a long resume, long pedigree in artificial intelligence and data science, which are you know my domains. It's what I do professionally. So we got into a fantastic conversation about what's coming down the pipe in space exploration, uh, specifically some of the developments that will occur with future Mars projects and the possibility of developing a space internet and what some of the economic ramifications of that will be. Then we transitioned into a conversation speaking a little bit about Web3 and blockchain technologies and whether or not we're going to build a blockchain in space. And then we wrapped up by spending some time on large language models and generative AI and some of the ethical and economic implications of those technologies. Chris spent some time talking about how he's working with large language models and code completion in day-to-day -day work and where he sees that going down the line. So it's a really wide-ranging conversation. We cover a lot of different topics of interest to futurists. So I hope you find, uh, find it as stimulating as I found it. And without uh, further ado, this is episode 127 with Chris Matman. Tonight, we're joined by Chris Matman. Chris Matman is the IT Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, as well as the Division Manager of the AI, Analytics, and Innovative Development Organization in the Information Technology and Solutions Directorate. He works on ensuring that cutting-edge technologies support NASA's science missions. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Trent. So, you know, uh, it's a pleasure to be on the Futurati podcast. Fantastic. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the projects that you're working on today. Yeah, well, no problem. So uh, I, I'm the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at NASA JPL. Um, I'm also an advisory board member of Slingshot uh, Aerospace. I've been since 2018. Um, work on a number of projects and uh, do a lot of different advisory capacities, generally in the area of, you know, everything from space to artificial intelligence to blockchain and crypto and, you know, a number of other areas that are, are very interesting to me. I guess, you know, probably the way I tell my origin story is kind of in three parts. Um, you know, part one, I grew up in uh, Santa Clarita, California. I was born in Los Angeles, California. Uh, Santa Clarita is about an hour north. If you've ever been to Magic Mountain, uh, that's basically where Santa Clarita is. It's the Six Flags over here in the West. Gotcha, <laughs> and gotcha. uh, yeah, I tell people, you know, that's all that was there, you know, 30, 40 years ago when I was growing up there. We we didn't get a mall till I was about, you know, 17 or 18. But, <laughs> you know, kind of a smaller town north of LA. And um, so, yeah, you know, I started out, I grew up there. I I was into computers, but, you know, I was, I wouldn't call myself kind of like a computer nerd or anything, you know, I, I would say Did that other people would, call you that, <laughs> you know, I mean, people ask me, you know, in my job right now, they say, oh, have you been a computer nerd your whole life, you know, and, and things like that. And I'm like, well, actually I was a sports nerd, you know, for me, my dream, you know, coming out of high school would have been to play college football, but I just never grew past five, nine. You know, and <laughs> yeah, every everybody around me, you know, I, I would say, you know, the big challenge, uh, you know, was that they all grew and that I didn't. So, you know, kind of growing up, I was into sports because I couldn't, you know, play them professionally or at the college level. I kind of pivoted, um, you know, and then for me, pivoting was sports journalism. And so I went into sports. I went into sports journalism and, you know, uh, basically did the yearbook for our high school for, you know, junior and senior year. And then. Coming out of my high school, you know, I basically applied to two schools for college. 
I applied to Michigan and the University of Southern California. So yeah, you know, when I when I didn't sort of make it in 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 playing college football, um, you know, I, I applied to two schools to go to college. I applied to USC and Michigan, and it had nothing to do with the academic prowess of either school. It basically was, you know, at the time in '97, Michigan had just won the national championship with Brian Greasy, and you know, USC was doing well and going to the Rose Bowl, although they had a bad year in '98. So you know, I got into USC. I didn't get into Michigan. USC, the University of Southern California, moved there. And uh, yeah, basically, uh, you know, this sort of leads into how did I get a job at JPL? Well, back then we used to go on these weird bulletin board systems and look for jobs. <laughs> and I was up in the computer lab late, you know, one night and I was tired of work study, working in the library. And um, there was a job from a company called JPL, not JBL, the headphone place. It was JPL. And they were looking for people that were good at database programming. And at the time, I had gotten pretty good at that. And um, so I was hired by an atmospheric scientist, Dr. Rob Raskin at JPL. I was hired to work on the Digital Earth Project. And uh, when I got to JPL, this was a pet project of Al Gore. And at the time, he didn't win the presidency. And so within three months of getting hired, my project was canceled. And so I pivoted, like we all do in the tech sector. And I started working on earthquake uh, systems uh, for some projects at Caltech. The first 10 years of my career, uh, Trent, were really, um, I would say, the big data era. And so mm -hmm. we moved to the era of, you know, everybody is a sensor, everybody has an iPhone. So right. obviously everything in the social media, web one, kind of web two space for that. But where we saw it in science was we all of a sudden had, uh, you know, instruments on our spacecraft, like the high-rise uh, instrument on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, that within a year would collect like hundreds, like 200 terabytes of data, and the entire size of the planetary archive before that was four terabytes. And wow. we had a single instrument, single mission that just took us, you know, it was, and then in Earth science, it was the same thing, you know, the quick scat Siemens mission, a scatterometer that I worked on, um, after 10 years, it took 10 gigabytes of data, and its typical job processing workload was tens of jobs per day. And then I got thrown in the fire on a project called OCO, the Orbiting Carbon Observatory, and they said, well, the requirements for that are within the first three months, it's going to generate 150 terabytes of data, and it needs to process tens of thousands of jobs per day, nominal job processing. So, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm a junior software engineer, I'm like, how am I going to do this? And I, you know, they gave me some C code <laughs> that used to work. Good and time. I was like, well, you know, I learned Java. We were all learning Java at the time. And, you know, I was in school and I actually stayed on to get my graduate degrees. And my like cousins and friends and, you know, my academic cousins and people I was working with were part of this foundation called the Apache Software Foundation. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it. It was the hub for where all Java code was being developed. And I really just leaned in and, and became part of it and started you know, I said this place you could leverage thousands of people around the world to build out software, real force, you know, arguably the biggest force in the movement of open source for about 15 years. And yeah, I just, I leaned into it. I got involved. I became on the board of Apache. I helped write a bunch of projects there and was a coder. I worked on Hadoop, Lucene, Nutch, SolarTK, Elasticsearch. I tell people if you've ever searched for anything on the web, if you've ever clicked on anything, if you've ever done a business transaction, my name's in the change log. And so, you know, that was sort of the first 10 years was leveraging that software to basically build out the next generation of NASA Earth science and planetary missions for the big data era. And I became the chief architect for instrument and science data systems. Uh, here's the next 10 years, very briefly. The, um, <clears throat> you learn a lot about everything that's wrong with missions and projects just in general <laughs> in IT <laughs> right. when you work on them. And, you know, Basically, I went around, I said, I have all these ideas for how to improve our, our missions and our projects. And I went around with my hand out to NASA and I learned that, I mean, at the time I had a PhD in computer science and I learned that they really like planetary geologists, but they look at people like me in computer science and they think that we're kind of the people that maintain the phones. And oh, wow. that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge. And so what I found out on a $2.5 billion Mars rover mission is that I could get like 50K, I tell people, I get 50K to build a database, you know, and and that's a challenge, you know, that makes it very difficult. And so at the time in the Obama administration in 2012, uh, the defense industry, the defense sector was getting a lot of money for big data. 
And um, so I basically engaged and started really working deeply with DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, was part of a number of programs with DARPA and, and other government agencies, including DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, and other places where there were cyber dollars. And I basically built $75 million program to really accelerate and tackle some of these big challenges that we saw coming. Zero mm -hmm. trust, um, AI, machine learning, you know, defense in depth, the application of AI, um, you know, to things like deep, eventually would be generators and generative AI. And so, yeah, you know, we just, we went very hard on that um, during that time. And I basically became a program manager um, and, and, you know, basically accelerated these technologies. And so the culmination of that was building out this particular technology called Tika, which is what the journalists use to uh, analyze the data leaks from the, what they would publish as the Panama Papers, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017. And so that was like the big part of my second half of my career. And my third act that I'm now in right now is after that, I transferred to IT in 2017. Over the last five now, about five and a half years-ish, I was the deputy CTO and now the CTO uh, for innovation, you know, at JPL. And I ran the division, you know, that's really focused on AI analytics, feature work, AR, VR, and all of the things. I think cloud, you know, a number of things that people are interested in. That is fantastic. I have several things that I want to follow up on as we move forward. I figure since we're both in machine learning and data science, it might be better to start there. So tell me a little bit about the endeavors that you're undertaking in that direction. Are, are you trying to build new approaches to machine learning or artificial intelligence and apply them? Are you just looking for ways to leverage known techniques and feel free to work in generative AI as you see fit? That's That's the hot thing now. We'll TikTok yeah. it. We'll take that one part out. And that'll go on TikTok. <laughs> well, I mean, I maybe I yeah, maybe I should use generative AI to, you know, do the response. Let me see. But <laughs> you know, I've got stable diffusion open and, and chat GPT. Um, so you know, it's it's sort of complex. Like I tell a lot of people, Trent, that JPL is not gonna be deep mind. We're not gonna go out, we're not the place where we're inventing a number of those new models. We we will you know, in some areas, like, and that's just because the nature of <clears throat> JPL. JPL is one of the United States national labs. And so the national labs started in the 30s and the 40s. There are places where you can do government work with civilian workforce, uh, you know, and basically they're supposed to do first of a kind things. Um, you know, so if you look at the national labs sort of, you know, with different government agencies, the DOE has dozens of them. They've got Brookhaven, Argonne, you know, the Department of Energy. The DOD has Lincoln Labs, MITRE, Draper, NASA has one JPL. And so because of that, the first of a kind things that we work on are the deep space network, the interplanetary internet, which is the way that all um, you know, organizations here in the US, but also our international partners, really any major country that wants to communicate with assets in deep space that has access to this very shared resource, um, you know, uses the deep space network. So we operate that for NASA. It's three 70 meter dishes, which are football stadium size in Canberra, Australia, so Madrid, Spain, and in Goldstone, California. And uh, so basically with the DSN, um, those dishes are how we command and also how we get data back, uh, you know, from our spacecraft. And so that's one of our key things. That's not commercialized yet. That's not, you know, the commercial industry isn't doing that. Elon and, and Blue Origin and Bezos aren't doing that. Um, the other thing that we do is we manage the Mars program. And, you know, the United States through JPL and NASA are, you know, besides the Chinese Zhirong rover that was only landed within the last year. And there are questions about whether they can even still communicate with that. Um, we, the U.S. has landed successfully six times before that under that Mars program. So those are our kind of like, first of a kind capabilities. So in that space related to AI and machine learning, just with that understanding, a um, couple of different things. So we see a future where there are AI chips at the edge, you know, for us. Uh, there, It's not true today. Um, a lot of people think that those amazing rovers that we put on Mars have these amazing chips in them and, oh, you're doing all this AI and machine learning there. We're not. Um, the most recent example where we actually have an analogous AI chip, you know, for things like that is the Ingenuity helicopter. It has a Qualcomm Snapdragon in it. So on the latest Mars 2020 Perseverance mission, the rover and its boring, it's coring rocks on Mars, dropping these tubules eventually for Mars sample return, it also had a helicopter. 
The helicopter originally wasn't part of the core mission. The helicopter is called Ingenuity. And it wasn't part of the core mission. So if it failed, the mission wouldn't fail. And so we call that a tech demo. Um, and so because of that, our risk profile on that was a lot you know, more accepting mm -hmm. rather than our typical risk, risk profile, with it, which wasn't. So we put an AI chip on that. We put the Qualcomm Snapdragon. And there are all sorts of great things you know, in that feature. And we believe that you know, it won't just be a tech demo. And we're actually baselining for things like Mars Sample Return to have multiple helicopters. And we're baselining all sorts of different AI-like, GPU-like chips uh, to use at the edge. Why haven't we used them before? Cosmic radiation. You know, so we tell people when you throw these chips up there into space, they get irradiated and, you know, it flips the bits from zeros to ones and ones to zeros. That's a problem, you know, when that's yeah, sort yeah. of the core core communication language. Mm -hmm. So because of that, you know, we haven't been able to put all these new chips. But now that we've kind of shown that we can and there are chips that kind of can withstand cosmic radiation and perform like that, we envision a future in which we could do all sorts of things. Like, as an example, the DSN from Earth to Mars is anywhere from eight to 20 minutes round trip flight time to send a message there and to get something back. And so because of that, uh, Mars surface operations today is limited 200 images a day to decide where to go the next day. Um, and so we've been working on a project over the last three or four years where instead of two or two or 300 images to decide where to go the next day for Mars rovers, what if I could give you a million captions? Text is cheaper than images to send over that very thin pipe from Earth to Mars. I could get more text back than images. What if I could give you a million captions? How could we get them? Well, we could run Google's show and tell, uh, a neural image caption generator at the edge if we had those types of chips you know, on the rovers and things like that. And uh, basically, what could it do? Well, it have to be validated. It would have to tell us like what's out in the distance, how far away, how many, you know, how many that there are. And things like that, which are all the different uh, properties, you know, that scientists want to look at when they're trying to kind of figure this out. They want to know, hey, what's out there in the distance? Oh, it's bedrock. Oh, how much of it? And and how far away is it? You know, it's 20 meters away and things like that. So we've been working on a model that we call drive-by science. That's a variation of that. Uh, you know, it's a variation of the Google Show and Tell model. We've been testing it locally. Uh, using our Athena test rover and NVIDIA TX2s, which are analogous, you know, types of chips to the Qualcomm Snapdragon. And yeah, uh, drive-by science is one of the examples that we're using. I could talk about others, but that's uh, hopefully one that kind of, you know, gets you out there in space. That's that's fascinating. Are, are you looking at the possibility of building agents that can operate semi-autonomously in environments like Mars? Um. So, so right now, I would say the closest thing that we're getting to that is that the next big Mars mission is called Mars Sample Return. And it's not a single mission. You could think of it, and I tell people, it's like an interplanetary Amazon. <laughs> you know, imagine if you needed a an Amazon delivery service from here to Mars. Well, the first thing you would need to do is show that you could get something back. And so Mars Sample Return is a series of five projects that will demonstrate that. And we already have one of which and two elements and assets to it, the 2020 rover and the Ingenuity helicopter that are a key critical part of that. So what that rover is doing is it's pouring rocks, it's dropping these tubules, you know, it's dropping them on Mars. And then what'll happen is our original plan was to have a fetch rover, uh, which was a much smaller rover that had to drive farther and faster, uh, you know, Trent. And so it had to drive farther and faster and it was a lot smaller. So the typical rover on Mars is car size today. It's like a Volkswagen bug about that size. Mm -hmm. um, this fetch rover originally was gonna be about the size of a bicycle. And, you know, the thing about that was that, uh, you know, it was going to have to have increased autonomy, increased coordination, because instead of driving a couple, traversing a couple kilometers a day, uh, you know, because Mars 2020 has been going for two years and the Fetch rover originally wasn't going to go there for another two years, it would have had a lot of ground to make up for. It would We would spec it out for hundreds of kilometers a day, pick up those tubules, get those tubules to a rendezvous point, which is what we call Mars Ascent Vehicle, MAV. Uh, which is a big rocket that takes those tubules, gets them up and out of the atmosphere. It's going to meet uh, Mars, uh, I think it's called a Mars Entry Vehicle or something. I think it's MEV. I forget its exact name, but it's an orbiter around Mars that it would rendezvous with. And then it comes back and then it uses Earth Entry Vehicle and Earth Entry Descent Lander to get back to Earth and get us those supplies back. So now, because Ingenuity was so successful, uh, we are going to have three helicopters instead of the Fetch rover. We've decided. And so there's a lot of talk right now that those helicopters 
will be specced out with whatever the next version of a Snapdragon-like chip is. And there's a lot of discussion right now about autonomous coordination in that particular context. That's fascinating. That's fascinating stuff. What are some of the uh, projects in the settling of, of space that you find most exciting? So over the past couple of years, we've done a number of interviews with people who are excited about the space economy, space tourism, possibly setting up manufacturing facilities in low Earth orbit. And, I, and I'm always curious about the economics of those things. It sounds really cool, right? There are certain kinds of crystals that form better in, in environments of low gravity. But I, I like to pick the brains of, of experts who are actually building these systems to find out which ones are feasible and which ones are you know, probably 50 years away. What are, what are some of the things, in addition to the projects we've already discussed, that excite you about, uh, let's, let's say, the next 20 years of, of development in space? You know, this is a great question. This is a great question, Trent. And I would say that for me, it's it's a basic infrastructure. You know, I mean, some people say it's the economic stupid or, you know, things like that. For me, it's the infrastructure. And a lot there's a lot of assumptions about infrastructure in space to even do some of these things. You know, you talk about space ag or, you know, things right. like that. You talk about some of these uh you know, like you said, mining or mineral things. Mm -hmm. And the assumption though, already for even doing things like that is that you have a reliable internet. And the biggest challenge that we have today is we don't have a reliable internet in space. Um, you know, I tell people, even with that deep space network, and that's just, again, it's not only for deep space, you can do near earth, you can do other things, you know, you can do lots of things with the deep space network, but there are various, uh, you know, spaceports, ground stations all around the world. Um, but Really what they're operating on primarily, 90 plus percent of them, is radio frequency or RF, which is speed of light like, but it's not as fast as optical and lasers. And so, like I tell people, the analogy is this: like you do not have a one to, you know, one to none connection to your central office to the internet. It's not a single connection. There are 30 plus hops along the way from your private home internet to your local office. And there's a reason for that: reliability redundancy, mm -hmm. you know, all sorts of other properties to have a fast and reliable internet. And just basic things that we expect in these environments sort of depend on that. And so I think that a lot of these things that people want to do make the assumption that today we already have things like deep space optical comm, uh, or even L2, or even out to the moon, or even just optical comm for that. And the, the closest thing that I know that it, they've done is there was a project with NASA called OPALS to kind of demonstrate this optical comm on the ISS and other things. And lots of people are looking at optical, but there's still there's still a barrier to entry because we don't have it. <laughs> you know, there's also space traffic asset management and some other right. things. But the big thing that I tell people is if you want to get to these sort of next gen space verticals, we have to invest in really uh, near near moon L2 and deep space optical comm. And I think it's going to come commercially. You know, I think commercial is going to kind of drive this, you know, to start. I don't think it's NASA or the government that's going to do this. They want to be consumers of it. So that, that's fascinating. So it, it would not have occurred to me to go to communications over the Internet as being the major bottleneck for the next iteration of, of space development. What, why is that so important? I mean, I can make some guesses about the ability to communicate and coordinate on problems and things like that. But But why is that the thing as opposed to, you know, reusable rockets that could fire three times a day or, or something like that. Why, why is that the big bottleneck? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great one. And so it relates to an old concept from Vint Cerf called uh, digital vellum. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm going to go back to the, the stone tablet era. But, uh, you know, how many people today can grab a floppy disk from 30 years ago, pop it into a drive and do anything with it? Very few. And, um, you know, many people, if I brought up the what a jazz drive is, a zip drive, you know, things like this, they'd say, huh? Or, you know, they'd react <laughs> like, what? Like, what are these things? Media, the physical media has changed so much. Just even our like physical asset storage media in the last 30 years that it gives you an idea. And there was this real focus on it's almost like software and hardware archaeology. And Vint Cerf gave a wonderful TED talk on this called digital vellum but he basically said hey in the future we're gonna have to tell people basically and possibly even store the operating system and everything required to run the software including even the storage medium we might have to have some way of storing the storage medium you know to basically unpack it and get it out now how does that relate to you know deep space internet and all these things that i'm saying that you need 
Well, I truly believe that, you know, the genie's out of the bottle on the way we're doing software development nowadays. The way people are building, you know, all of those use cases in space are going to require software. They're going to require business processes. They're going to require interactions that people behave terrestrially. They expect capacious network. They expect capacious, you know, computing ability. They expect all of these things. And we're losing, you know, in all sorts of areas, Trent, the perspective on how to operate with less. And that's okay in many ways, because, you know, it's allowed us to achieve all of these sort of great things, you know, chat GPT, large language models, all of these different things would not have come if we didn't look at, you know, what was steering in front of us, which was lack of bandwidth resources and, and say, that's not a problem. <laughs> We're going to, you know, build one of these things in Amazon or Google that have all the access to it. And then we're going to figure out ways instead of having everyone build one of transferring that through open source or whatever to the public. I truly believe in the future, the way that software development, hardware, business, space development is going, there will be the expectations. And from a skilling perspective in our people, this is what they're coming out, being trained in the space domain on. They're not being trained on how to program Fortran 77, how to operate in a low resource environment. They're being trained to expect certain things. And so we've got to give it to them. We've got to have the network there. We've got to provide them as close to terrestrial-like environments that we can have so that when they're ready to make that next leap and bound, we can, we can give it to them. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati Podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Could you, could you walk me through a project that's not feasible today that would be feasible with a, a interplanetary internet? What would that make possible? Just concretize it for me. Yeah, well, I'll give you a couple of different examples. So, so today, um, there is a great desire, I think, in my generation to have the human explorer moment on another planet. It is since really the Apollo missions to have boots on on anything of human, you know, blood bag human beings on another planet or celestial body. You know, robots are fine. We've done it. But we would like, you know, biological entities uh, on one of these bodies again. Well, in order to achieve that, there is very much an understanding in today's 24 hour news cycle that if that were to happen, you know, providing them after the fact, you know, eight to nine seconds of video isn't going to cut it. Uh, you know, of the people walking and and things like that. We want real time boots on the ground, you know, live from across CNN and all the different, you know, whatever, all the different media organizations throughout the world. And they're going to want access to it. There's, they're also going to need a number of these capabilities, not just for real time video, but even comps because they're such a, uh, you know, basically this eight to 20 minute round trip light time because of RF right now. In that eight minutes, there's a great video on YouTube that just shows you how fearful we were of the robot dying. Uh, it's called Seven Minutes of Terror. And it describes the seven minutes of entry, descent, and landing under what that is in that eight to 12, 20 minute window where we don't know, we don't know if it's actually going to land, <laughs> you know, or if it landed. And could you imagine that with humans and actual biological entities and so on? and so forth so that's that's exactly why trent you know that i mean that's just an example you know with real-time video where why you know we would need something like that that's that's fascinating it, it speaks to the human need to narratize things and, and tell stories about them and being able to connect with this mission in a very personal way will will facilitate investment dollars pouring into the space um it, it will it will facilitate summoning the public will to move forward in these ways. I, I definitely buy into the thesis that that's very important. Are, are there any startups that are working on this kind of thing, optical communications that you're keeping an eye on? Um, there's a couple. Um, you know, basically there was a startup called NXM that was working on 
secure internet communications uh, related to this. And they're also focused on zero trust, uh, you know, as it's sort of related to that. Um, you know, so it's not just, you know, looking at that type of optical, uh, you know, comms and things like that, but it's also zero trust. That's been one that I've been following, you know, in particular, but, but, you know, other than that, I, I'm not, you know, the last time, I mean, I know that this is a big deal basically from 2013 to 2017, because I was working on Opals, you know, at the time, which was our tech demo for it. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, no, I, I don't have anything other than sort of NXM that I was tracking, but, you know, I know that there's a lot of interest in this space right now. And then also with the movement, uh, you know, in a couple different areas, realizing that network is important for other reasons, Trent, like IoT, 5G, mm. you know, and bandwidth and spectrum buys for that. There was a lot of interest, I would say, over the last like five years it, terrestrially that will matter in space related to that. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. How does this interface with the problem of tracking assets in space? So this is something that just by dent of my day job, I'm paying more attention to, but it's also an issue that I've I've sort of tacitly been tracking for a number of years. There's a lot of stuff up there, and it's and it's increasing all the time. And I've heard of a number of different uh, ideas for tagging them or making license plates in space and that sort of thing. How do, how do you think about that problem? And you're uniquely positioned to to weigh in on it. Yeah, well, you know, so for me, I I think like. I think basically, uh, you know, the big the big kind of interest interesting part is that there's a lot of there's a lot of traffic up in space, you know, and 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 that's let's just start with that, you know, that there's this famous sort of diagram, you know, which is like that shows how many satellites are actually orbiting the Earth, um, you know, and it it just I mean people think like the Earth just like looks all nice and pretty until you see this like what's actually orbiting the Earth and and yes there are different vertical columns and you know that sort of goes out into infinity you know and things like that for that but still like if you look at what's orbiting the Earth it's a mess you know right now and there's a lot of efforts thinking about just space tracking for space asset management both commercially because obviously everyone is you know, just investing like crazy in commercial space and things like that right now. And so it's getting kind of crowded up there. As for kind of tracking, you know, and technologies and capabilities to do that, the real big question is, is there a centralized authority to do it? And before, you know, obviously Space Force and government, you know, elements for that versus actual commercial capabilities, you know, as an example, you know, like that Slingshot or other companies are building. So is it going to be centralized or is it going to be something, you know, and that's, from an asset traffic sort of asset tracking management perspective. Then there's all sorts of work right now. It's like the early days of the internet on protocols and standards, you know, related to that. Is it going to use, you know, traditional, I would say, you know, web one, web two technologies to do it? Is there going to be provenance? Is there going to be metadata models? Is it going to be related to space standards like CCSDS, the Consultative Committee on Space Data Systems that has the standards for space, uh, space telemetry, you know, as as an example, or, you know, things like uh, delay tolerant networking, you know, for ways for communicating space. So there's a lot of work right now, even on looking at the standards, you know, for this, or is it going to be, you know, again, I think that a lot of the web three people would love for this to be a use case for blockchain, you know, and this is where you hear people say, oh, you know, you know, when blockchain in space or, you know, things like that. And they're kind of <laughs> talking about, you know, they're kind of talking about that. So um, I think that there's a lot of room to innovate you know, in that space, Trent, and that's sort of where it's at right now. So that is a, a nifty little segue into the topic of blockchain and Web3. I know that this is something you're hugely enthusiastic about, as am I. I've been at a couple of different blockchain startups, and it's a, a space that I've invested a lot of time in exploring. I, I do think there's a tendency sometimes when when nerds get a hold of a shiny new technology to just try to do everything on it. Uh, and it's, it's not clear to me that there's any real reason to eat the costs of uh, decentralized ledger maintenance when you're talking about space data. So where do you come down on that? I mean, do, do you think blockchain and space even makes any sense? Uh, do you want to do it just because it would be awesome? You know, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Um, 
Yeah, so so a couple of things, um, you know, so eating the cost of blockchain ledger in space just, you know, more generally basically means paying the cost of like hashing and finding out, you know, where the next block is and then propagating and updating that. And then given that I've just said that we're really bandwidth limited in space, you know, absent, um, you know, there's a lot, let's just put it this way, there's a lot of networking, you know, that has to occur after e and communication and coordination, even after doing those computations. So yes, like I don't come down on the realm that it's time yet for, you know, deploying a distributed ledger in space to kind of solve everything. But this is also why, again, like I sound like a broken record, like, but then imagine a future in 10 years in which we went like a moonshot like project for deep space optical comm today. You know, like it's, you know, you remember that sort of trend where people were, and it wasn't a trend, I think it was actually government investment. And it was even pre the existing administration, although it's really good, the infrastructure, you know, bill and all that, I think it's benefiting a lot of rural, rural communities, you know, with uh, uh, bringing broadband to them. But there have been big efforts over the last 10 years, independent of U.S. administrations, where they've really been looking at how do we get the world connected, you know, to the Internet in places where it's not. I, I love that. I, I think, again, like, you know, we're only limited, you know, it's an idea economy, right here on the world. I tell, I tell this to my son, you know, we joke around, you know, he's, he's my little tough guy, he's, you know, 14. And, you know, we joke around, I say, might doesn't make right. And I say, it's an idea economy. And if you think about that, it's an idea economy. If part of the ideas that we could generate are limited by the fact that, you know, certain people are using a string attached to a cup to communicate, whereas others are using, you know, an advanced cell phone, like an iPhone, <laughs> that's an issue. You know, we want to at least get them on an iPhone, you know, 10, <laughs> maybe not a 13, but we want to get them up to an iPhone 10. Imagine what we could do if we could do that trend. Um, if we had a moonshot investment in deep space optical comm over the next 10 years, my feeling is um, you could start to talk about, hey, you know, polygon in space or, you know, a low, you know, lower energy, low resource. And it might make sense. My big worry is that right now, when you look at, in my day, the infrastructure, the discussion, all about Hadoop, all about Spark, all about, you know, all of these things. So you have a generation of people that came out learning Java, wanting the infrastructure, the core infrastructure to be in Java, whereas the out surrounding fabric to be in Python, just from a programming language perspective. And because of that, look at how many decisions are being made just related to what people were taught, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, the worry I have is people are being taught Web3 in class. They're being taught, you know, blockchain technologies. That is kind of the infrastructure in a lot of cases, you know, not, not solely. I mean, you still need databases. You still need things like that. But there's so much really education that's happening, you know, even in JavaScript libraries and interacting and doing it in this sort of decentralized way and wallets and all of these things that I feel like if we don't find a way to focus that knowledge distribution that we've been doing and we just leave them out on the island with the the cup attached to the string we're not doing a good job you know i think we need to get them to where an evil even playing field and i would love to see the innovation after that do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event thomas fry and me trent fowler are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. It, it seems like path dependency plays a pretty large role in your thinking. Like this next generation of engineers and innovators who are coming online are used to low latency networks. They're used to expansive communication abilities. They're used to web three tooling. And, and a lot of your thinking seems to be geared towards trying to, you know, give them the hammers and the drills that they're used to working with, uh, presumably to lower the friction in the process and to make it easier for them to work. Do I have that right? You do, Trent. And, you know, it's so funny because, you know, I was one of those people looking at, you know, my predecessors, like, you know, inventors of Postgres who were crapping on us for MapReduce and things like that. And, you know, <laughs> constantly dissing us, you know, we did that 20 years ago. And, and, you know, I'm sitting here, you need to enable. And now I'm one of those people that really arguably is the older generation of people that innovated looking at that new generation. And, and the big lesson I did learn really two things is to enable them, number one, you know, and, and really, like you said, give them the tools that they need because they really are the future. The other is we're in a ticking timeline here. 
Um, chat GPT will fundamentally change in large language model AI, you know, it will fundamentally change the way people do code development. It, it really will. I mean, I sat there with a large language model, the chat GPT the other day, you know, I'm the inventor of the Tika library. Uh, you know, it's a very well, widely used library to do all the data file processing. And, you know, I call it the digital babel fish. It can write very reliable Tika code. Okay. It can, I can ask it to, and not just samples off a of stack overflow. It can develop very complex things with that library. It can, you know, suggest things that don't exist even for the library, you know, or places that, you know, I might want to think about organizing the code. So before I used to tell people, don't worry about integrated development environment tooling. It's really just there to help you. You know, why are you worried about autocomplete on your class function name or things like that? I mean, who cares? It's just productivity, right? And because the humans had all the creativity, you know, your organization mm -hmm. of your module and your, that's where it's coming from. I can't even say that anymore. I am so amazed by what these large language models can do and their fundamental coming integration really to replace eventually integrated development environments and possibly for, you know, not even mundane tasks, even mild to moderately complex tasks, you know, basically changing our need to write code for it rather than to simply become prompt generators, you know, to really prompt these things to do that. I see a coming wave that if we don't enable this generation of and what they've learned, we're gonna they're gonna miss out. You know, they're gonna miss out. So I share your enthusiasm for the uh, large language models. And there there's been some talk on Slack channels at Slingshot where we're we're uh you know demoing it and, and tinkering with it for the purposes of of generating code. I asked it the other day to make me a Python script that could convert between a couple of different orbital frames. And it, it wasn't quite right. So it passed an argument to the function it didn't even use and there wasn't a return statement, but like quite a lot of it was usable and impressive. And I'm, I'm curious as to the extent to which you're using it day to day. I mean, have you integrated it into your workflow yet? And I, I know some people have. So Amjad Massad is a, uh, the founder of Replit, and he talks a lot about these things. And he says that when Ghostwriter, which is their native, natively integrated large language model for code generation, is offline, he feels as though 15 or 20 IQ points have been robbed from him. He's just noticeably less productive. So I, I think it will depend a lot on the things you're doing and how formulaic they are. But I'm curious as to what your experience has been like so far. I mean, are, are you using it a lot or are you just sort of tinkering with it? How's it, how's it making its way into your your day-to-day? Yeah, yeah, great, great question, Trent. And so we are, I am not using it a lot in my day to day activities and my, my data scientists, I have almost 100 people in my innovation division at JPL, um, I would say they are actively, you know, more actively trying to figure out how to how to leverage it day to day. And for us, I wouldn't say there's a lot of only formulaic things, but even like mundane or even some elements of creativeness, you know, it, it can do it can just do wrong. Here's the thing that I think people miss out on, and I, I wasn't thinking you were suggesting this, but I just don't want the audience listening to this to think it doesn't stop at the first prompt. So, so many people think you just type one thing to it and then you get it out. These large language models are powerful because they take the context of all prior conversation mm -hmm. with them when they go to answer it. Where these things really shine is on the fifth prompt when you're having a conversation with it and you say, oh, you got that wrong. You know, you, you used a phone function that you know you never called and you you know watch it refine that and watch mm -hmm. it get closer and watch it and then the next time watch it not do that again you know so this is the powerful thing is it actually has contextual memory you know which is really why the you know it's a, uh these are you know 65 billion parameter models like in the case mm -hmm. of llama or you know things like that i will tell you my you know, not concern, but, you know, the challenge is, you know, with ChatGPT, and I can already see it's the fastest thing to 10 million users. It's great. Um, I still, I love it. I play around with that one a lot, but I have spent and invested a lot of time the last week or two into Meta's Llama. And I'll tell you why. You can run it locally. Um, I can download the model. It's just a Torch model. And, you know, I'm a TensorFlow guy. <laughs> I mean, I spoke at the PyTorch conference. I gave a keynote. I mean, I, I wouldn't say... I'm only one or the other, but I did write machine learning with TensorFlow second edition. So I, you know, I am very familiar with TensorFlow. That's my thing. But, you know, I look at this, it's got a params.json file, you know, it's got, you know, it's, it looks like a, a Python HDF, you know, for all the, you know, parameters or whatever, you know, for its model storing. It's, I can look at it, you know, I mean, it's yeah. sure it's binary, but I can use it. I can run <laughs> it locally. I can do things with it. 
um, I have no clue what's out there in OpenAI. And so the challenge that I have with that is OpenAI and Sam, you know, and all the people that are, you know, the people that are running that company are great, but <laughs> it is a company. And you, there are lots of checks and balances that they're putting and they're making and changing and tweaking with that model. Whereas if I use something like Llama, I've got it and I can tweak it and, and build it on my own. So companies that are going to put these large language models out and then start to do zero shot or quantization and make it even smaller and more compact, more runnable, that's where I think it, that is a game changer. You know, that's going to be a fundamental, not just putting it out as a service, but like, give me the model. You know, let me have the model and play with it. Like that's more that's more interesting to me. Like I discovered the other day with Llama, um, <laughs> in its default examples, it shows you two things. It shows you that it has natively learned how to do language translation. Who knows how many languages? I mean, I had an ACL publication last year with a gentleman who was my PhD student at USC, who now is doctor PhD student and works at Microsoft. He joined their translate team. But, you know, his thesis was on an, a 500 to English or, you know, any to many, uh, you know, basically encoder model, uh, you know, for translating 500 plus languages, which is 200 more than Google Translate does to English. And, you know, he trained it on TAC, Texas Advanced Computing Center. You know, he he had to do all the pre-processing work. It was his basically his life's work thus far. And I'm looking at Llama and Llama has figured out Llama can say in its default examples, you know, they give it a few prompts for this word to this word in French, and it finishes the last prompt and figures out you're trying to tell it to translate, and then it translates it. The other thing I noticed is that you can give it a tweet that has sentiment analysis, and yet a couple more tweets, and it'll do sentiment analysis for you. So all of these, and you didn't even tell it, you simply right. showed it some examples. So it's figured out you want it to do sentiment analysis, and it'll, that is wild. That is wild. So that tells me it's a multi-model ensemble. Like it's got logistic regression in it. It's got bag of words. It's probably got, you know, different encoding models in it. You know, so that is just wild to me, you know, and, and I think we're going to spend the next decade unpacking even what these things have learned, you know? No, I, I completely agree. It's I, I've made the case before that this is something new. Uh, in a trivial sense, it's a continuation of technology we've been tinkering with since the 60s, you know, and the very first neural networks and perceptrons and Minsky's work and all of that. But I, I very much of the opinion that at a large enough scale, you know, quantity becomes its own quality, as they say. And and, and this does strike me as something that's new and different and will have major impacts. Uh, I wanted to, to close out uh, on a cheerful note by asking you about technological unemployment and AI safety. Uh, we, we can try to make that as compact as possible. I mean, those are huge topics, but I mean, are you at all worried about uh, technological unemployment, this this replacing coders in the future? Yeah, you know, I am. Um, and I've told people this, you know, it is definitely possible and, and not just with large language models. I mean, who knows what now people are even thinking. And I've seen sort of two sides of it. I'll give it to you in art. You know, we'll talk about the art real quick and then I'll talk about the my other kind of fear or, you know, whatever. Um, the art one, I know artists on both sides, you know, we're talking about Web3. Web3 has enabled a lot of artists to, you know, make money, whereas before it was very difficult for them to do that and to transact. Um, and, you know, you look at art, you look at Dolly, you look at stable diffusion. And so people are asking, hey, is that stealing the artist's images? Mm -hmm. And, you know, is that good or bad? I think a lot of lawyers are going to get paid a lot of money to answer and <laughs> suss out the, is that good or bad in the middle part as, of it. As so, is often I'll the case. <laughs> as is often the case but on the periphery i know the artists that hate it and that's i respect it i understand why you know it's probably the same in the beginning i you know i was a cassette tape guy you know and i even have seen an eight track and you know put them in and out even though i didn't really have one it was my parents but you know i'm sure the artists and, and vocal recording artists back then were upset that you could copy those things and make a copy of a cassette and i know that they were and i know there's a lot of work into drm that had to be done for that. So I understand that on the left-hand side, let's say artists. But then I know artists that have literally gone out and made a 25-slide deck where they're trying to break down how to use Dali and Stable Diffusion in their art to, you know, what are the ways to get the prompts to do it what you want, you know, and to save time. And so those are the ones that are leaning in and saying, my job as an artist is changing. You know, even if I'm a digital artist, it's not going to be go to Photoshop and all these things anymore. It's going to be to figure out how to combine that with maybe prompts and other things. So they're looking at the AI as an assistant and a helper. 
So there's that and that model. So how do we get, how do we look at that next activity and make sure that it's transitionable? And we don't tell those artists to learn to code, hate that. In that, you know, in that vein, it's the same with truckers. You know, I tell people, hey, in the next two to three years, you know, down there in Texas, there's a gentleman named Elon Musk that moved his company there. And there's a very real possibility that on very long, you know, uh, 18 plus hour truck routes, you know, which are perilous, fraught with peril, drivers falling asleep as well, that autonomous trucks will drive them and that they'll do them in such a way that about a million truckers will be displaced. And so then the question is, uh, what happens to those truckers? Again, and it's not learn to code. It's, uh, I think it's figure out what not what their prompts are, but how do we get their SME knowledge into these these trucks or these things that aren't going to know or have that contextual experience that they have? And we're going to spend a lot of time figuring that out. We ought to pay those people, you know, high salary jobs, you know, and and make them give them that sort of transition off ramp. The last thing I'll say related to ethics outside of the context of upskilling and transitioning is, you know, obviously bias. Obviously, you know, the early smart cars, since we're on the topic of that, they did not recognize people of color because they mm -hmm. weren't trained on them. They did not recognize people in wheelchairs. You know, we need the people that we need these things to be trained on data that represents us. And so we need DEI and A in there. We need balanced data. We need people looking at that. And we need the training data to represent us. The last thing that we need is, you know, we don't want to hear the weather is going to be rainy here in Southern California. Oh my God. You know, when they predicted that it was, you know, going to rain for five minutes and then be sunny, we want their confidence with that. And we can give it. Predictions come with confidence. And too long have we normalized predicting things without telling us the confidence in it. That's the other element. We need predictions with confidence. That's fantastic. I really appreciate you weighing in on those things. I think I broadly agree. We could probably do a follow episode, a follow up episode just on those those topics alone. So, uh, are are there any final thoughts you want to leave the Future Audio Podcast audience with? Um, you know the the only thing is that you know we talked about we've been in a lot of places. I would say Trent, you know, on this, and it's been a just really enlightening discussion. I am more positive. People ask me, are you negative about the future, Chris, or more positive? I am more positive about the future. Um, for me, you know, we are, you know, we don't have, well, we kind of do have flying cars in a way, if you go to the UAE or Saudi Arabia or the, you know, Dubai, you know, there are, you know, those flying taxis that they allow on a test basis right now. But I think we're in the era of, we, you know, we are, we are closer to the Jetsons era than we know. Um, I think, you know, what we need back is our humanity and we're getting it. <laughs> you know, I think people are kind of leaning into the humanity now which is really nice because we're going to need it. We're going to need people to work together that hadn't worked together before and to figure out the next generations of advancements. That's fantastic. Nice, hopeful, optimistic note to end on. Thanks so much, Chris, for your time and for the, the sparkling conversation. Hey, thanks for having me, Trent. I'd love to come back anytime. Thank you, Futurati. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>